0: Well, last week uh, you'll remember we had the privilege of talking about the glorious first coming of Christ Jesus, the eternal Word. Uh, This week I thought we would uh, change gear and talk about the second coming of the glorious Word uh, in the flesh. Now, that incredible gift. Of God's own Son. And just to recap those words that we looked at last week, those glorious words from John uh, in chapter 1, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and though the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But whoever did receive him, whoever believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood or of the will of the flesh, or the will of man, but born of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. That was last week, a marvelous opportunity, uh, Christmas Eve last week, to look at that. Now if Christmas is about looking back, which it is really, it's about looking back at the first coming of Christ, uh, New Year's is really about looking forward. And I don't mean looking forward necessarily to this year uh, and the practical needs of this year, you can do that on your own. I was thinking we might look all the way forward to uh, as far as um, we can in the biblical narrative to the coming of Christ Jesus a second time last time uh, in the flesh this time uh, the eternal word coming in flesh to save us from our sins the second time to come and to save us from our enemies to save us from uh, remaining sin and to bring us into glory and so i want to uh, focus with you on a, a passage that really helps us to understand the the practical impact of the second coming of jesus christ Uh, The second coming of Jesus Christ is a massively practical doctrine that has a huge impact on the way we live and think, uh, and the way in which we ought to live and think throughout the year ahead of us. So let's focus on that together. And I'd love you to turn with me to James, and chapter 5. James chapter 5. And I'm going to be focusing on verse 7 through to verse 12 with you, but I'll read from verse 1. Just to give you a a sense of the context leading up to these uh, amazing words. So James chapter 5 and verse 1. And you can hear the, um, the incredible wisdom of James. I've heard it said that James is really the Proverbs of the New Testament. And of course that's not completely true. James doesn't speak in Proverbs. But the point is that James is the one, perhaps more than anybody else, who's able to take doctrine... And apply it so practically and so forcefully in our lives. And that's what we have uh, in James 5 with regard to the second coming of Jesus. So, James chapter 5 and verse 1. It says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotten, uh, rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person, and he does not resist you verse 7 Be patient therefore brothers until the coming of the Lord See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains You also be patient establishing uh, establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand Do not grumble against one another brothers so that you may not be judged Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job and have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, brothers, my brothers, do not swear, neither by heaven nor by nor by earth, nor by any other oath, but let your yes be yes, and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. This is God's word. Now I want to start with a question for you, and ask you how much does the truth, Jesus is coming again, impact your lives in a practical way? How much does that truth, Jesus is coming again, impact your life in a real, practical way? How many times do you think about the fact that Jesus is coming again? How many times have you thought about that fact in the last month? How many times have you thought about it in the last year? How many times have you heard it mentioned in a song or in a prayer or in a sermon? Or in a conversation and it not had really any impact on your mood, on your mindset, on your hope, on your endurance, steadfastness, on your ability to suffer well, on your uh, trust and faith in God, and your evangelism. How much impact has it had? See, of all of the uh, doctrines that should have practical impact on our lives and yet don't have much practical impact on our lives, I want to suggest to you that the second coming of Christ is maybe top of the list. You see, there are many doctrines, in fact all doctrines, should have practical impact on our lives. And I would suggest that most of them do, nowhere near as much as they should, but most of them do. Think of doctrine like it's a, 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 a gold mine that you're drilling into. You never get to the bottom of it, because if you did. I mean, imagine getting to the bottom of the gold mine of the holiness of God. Imagine how much of an impact that would have on your life, how practical that would impact you. To truly understand the holiness of God, what would that do to you? But I do think that understanding the holiness of God and pondering on it does have some impact on our lives. It's not completely impactless. As we consider it, other doctrines would be the same. The atonement, we we think about the atonement regularly. The fact that we are saved from our sins. The fact that our sins have been atoned for has a practical impact on our lives, as it should. We haven't got to the bottom of that gold mine, not by any stretch. But of all of these things, maybe the shallowest gold mine in all of our theology might be the second coming of Christ. Thinking about and being impacted on a daily basis by the fact that Jesus is coming again. That he could come today, that he could come tomorrow, but that one thing is sure, as sure as he came the first time, he will come again. And the impact that should have on our ability to suffer well, to suffer with uh, joy and peace, would be immense. You know that it would be immense. If you really lived with a a solid, conscious awareness that Christ is coming back, that he will come back soon, it would have a massive impact on your life. And the reason it would have a massive impact on your life is because uh, it is the doctrine, it is the event, that really is the end of the story, that really tells the end of the story. And by knowing the end of the story, and this is the key, By knowing the end of the story, it has a massive impact on how you live through the story. By knowing how things will shape up, how things will end, has a massive impact on the way you're able to live and uh, the way you're able to suffer within this world. You see, (laughs) when you know things are going to work out, the, 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 the trip-ups and the falls and the stumbles along the way have far less impact, don't they? If you know things are going to work out. You know, I, I preached on this text uh, in uh, Shaw Baptist Church uh, a few months ago and it just happened to be the day that the Rugby World Cup final was being played on that Sunday. In fact, it was being played during the service, right? We were all singing and praying and I was preaching, all <laughs> with the, in the back of our minds that actually uh, the Rugby World Cup is being played right now, the All Blacks are being uh, are, are playing. And I made a comment during the sermon, I said I know that many of you know this is happening uh, and many of you have decided not to give it any attention during the service, and that is good, uh, and you've decided that you're going to watch the game after the service. Okay. And you're hopeful, though not completely certain, that you'll be able to get home not knowing the score, right? That you'll be able to watch the game not knowing the outcome. And you may even hope to get home without knowing the outcome. Now, why is that? Because if you knew the outcome of the game before you started watching the game when you got home, it would have a huge impact on the game, on how you watch the game. If you knew, for example, that the All Blacks were going to lose, which they did, uh, then when the All Blacks scored tries and you're watching it, you would not be anywhere near as excited. You'd be like, "Wow, well, I know they're going to lose. And when the uh, opposite team scores tries, you know the outcome as well. There's a sense of real doom and gloom whenever that takes place. Conversely, if you would had known that the All Blacks were going to win, then when the opposition team scored a try, you wouldn't care. <laughs> you'd be like, what does it matter? We're going to win anyway. Even if if they were up like 30 points at halftime, you'd be like, what does that matter? We're going to win. I know we're going to win. Now you apply that to our lives. When you know that Jesus is coming back, when you know that you're going to win, that the battle that you have with cancer is a battle you're going to win eventually, It might kill you, but you're going to win that battle. Your body will be cancer free one day and you will live forever without cancer. When you know that the battle you have with depression is a battle you will win. When you know that the battle you have with injustice is a battle that you will win. It doesn't matter anywhere near as much that you are suffering with injustice and difficulty uh, as you are at this time. So let's um, consider what James has to tell us then about the second coming and its practical impact on our lives. See, the context that James is speaking to is a church that is being persecuted. And it's being persecuted in a particular way. They're being defrauded. They are uh, working, they are are striving, they are mowing lawns, they are helping in harvest fields, and their pay is being kept back from them. There's an injustice that is being, uh, um, uh, that they are having to suffer through. And you get that in the opening uh, verses of chapter 5. So we're told that uh, in verse 4 of chapter 5, uh, behold, the wages of the labourers. Who mowed your fields, which you have kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. So that's what's going on. Are, what seems to be happening is there are uh, people, Christians in fact, who are being uh, persecuted and persecuted through fraud. Uh, sort of financial persecution. Now it's uh, comforting to know that that is a persecution that God notices and that it is a real persecution. It's not just physical persecution that the Lord opposes. But financial, social, economic, all of these types of persecution uh, were going on in the New Testament church and uh, may continue to go on throughout all of history. And it is comforting to know that this persecution is noticed by God. Behold, the wages of the laborers who have mowed your fields have been kept back by fraud. You have kept back by fraud. Are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You see? You see? It is a comforting thing to know that the Lord sees these things, that the Lord will correct these things, that the Lord will bring uh, justice upon the earth, and of course, the time that He will do that will be the second coming of Jesus Christ. But how does James instruct us to respond to this persecution, to this injustice that is coming? How are we supposed to react? Are we supposed to react by demanding justice? By executing justice ourselves even? No. Not that it would be completely wrong to seek justice. But that is not the instruction that James gives. In fact, rather, James gives uh, three instructions, none of which have anything to do with seeking justice for yourself. What they are told to do is, number one, be patient, Number two, don't grumble. And number three, always guard the name of the Lord. Be patient, don't grumble, always guard the name of the Lord. So what I want to do today is go through those three instructions, look at the motivation behind being able to do that, being in the coming of Christ Jesus and establishing your heart for the coming of Christ Jesus. And then I want to finish by looking at the example of Job. In his example of suffering and steadfastness under suffering which we have in this passage as well so that's our outline three instructions in one great example in job so first instruction when suffering uh, persecution financial persecution or otherwise we are told in verse seven can you read it with me the first two verse uh, words of verse seven it says be patient Okay. Now for those people who would just skip over that and move on to verse 8, for the slow ones in the class like me, uh, you also be patient. Establishing your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. The Bible is very clear. We are to be patient. Patience is an important virtue. Impatience is a sinful act. We often don't think of impatience as if it is sinful. We think of impatience as if it's just normal, right? It's just a normal human thing. Everyone's impatient. We talk about other things like they're sinful, right? We talk about uh, if someone is uh, struggling with lust, they commit adultery, we say that person has sinned. That person who struggles with lust is struggling with sin. Someone who struggles with alcohol, we say the same thing. This person is struggling with sin. But if somebody struggles with impatience, we say... uh, Everybody struggles with impatience, right? Welcome to the club. We're all impatient. And I want to suggest to you that that's not the way we should consider these things. That's not the way we should approach that. It is a very serious thing to be impatient. In fact, it's a deadly thing to be impatient. Consider the illustration that uh, James gives us in verse 7. He says, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. And then he gives this illustration of patience. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains. Now why that illustration is useful to us is because it illustrates how serious impatience really is. If this farmer was impatient, and he was to harvest his crops before they had grown, what would happen? He would have no income for that year. He would have no food for that year. He may even starve to death that year, him and his family. To be impatient has massive consequences. To be impatient may even have deadly consequences. Imagine if these ones, these Christians, were to take the law into their own hands, were to take the, uh, the, the initiative to pursue justice themselves, to execute judgment and justice themselves. They would have, probably at the very least, the wrath of the empire, the Roman Empire, coming down upon them, and may well have the wrath of God coming upon them eternally, in fact. Impatience is a deadly sin. It is a sin that we must count as a sin, that we must repent of, and that we must ask the Lord's grace to help us with. It is a fruit of the Spirit. And it is a fruit of the Spirit listed well before self-control is listed. I think it's number four. Self-control being uh, number nine. Now, I don't think that's necessarily how it works. It's not order of importance. But you get my point. It's an important thing. Patience. Uh, To illustrate that further, let me ask you this. Does it matter that God is patient? Does that matter? Yeah, that matters a tremendous amount. Imagine if he wasn't. If God was not impatient, was not patient, you would not be saved. If God was impatient, we would not be saved. This is a theme you could trace through the whole Bible. Uh, in fact, let's just do that. We, we all want to be here in the heat all afternoon, so let's just start at the beginning. Well, we won't start at the very beginning. We'll start with Noah. So 1 Peter uh, 3 and verse 20 says this, God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. Why? So that he could save one family from the flood. Noah knows how important it is that God is patient. God is patient with the people of Israel when he announces who he is to them in Exodus 34 and verse 6 he says, I am the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Israel knows how patient God is and how important it is that he is patient this is carried on through the New Testament as well Romans chapter 2 God's patience is intended to lead you to repentance Romans chapter 9 God is bearing with great patience the objects of his wrath 1 Timothy 1 and verse 16 Paul credits his salvation entirely to the perfect patience of Jesus Christ you see how important patience is 2nd Peter three fifteen, we are told that uh, we are told to count the Lord's patience as our salvation 2nd Peter uh, chapter 3 and verse 9 just before the verse I just read we're told that the very reason we should be patient with respect to the Lord's return is because God is being patient not wanting any to perish the patience of the Lord means salvation is, impatient, is patience important? It is in fact the essence of godliness. It is in fact the essence of the gospel. Patience is of immense importance. And by the way, recognising that is the key to having patience. Recognising not just that God is patient. Not that he just commands you to be patient. But recognising that he has been patient with you. Is the essence and the motivation for patience. In this life as we look forward to the coming of Christ Jesus you see just as God waited in the days of Noah and he put up with all of the sins of the people of the world that he had committed himself to destroy patiently waited so that he could rescue Noah and his family in the same way God is waiting in our day as well God is putting up with all of the sin he is putting up with all of the blasphemy against his name He is putting up with all of the horrors and injustices of this world. Why? So that he could save you. You know what would happen if Jesus returned uh, the year before you were born? The patience of God waited for you. You who were written in his book. You who are part of his elect. He waited for you to be born. For you to be called in time by his sovereign power. For you to be saved from your sin. For you to be counted as part of his family. And for you to now wait patiently for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Is patience important? Patience is why you're saved. Patience is why you are God's. God's children. And of course we can suffer these things, these difficulties, because we know that that second coming is a certainty. Secondly, we're told to not grumble. We're told to be patient, establishing our hearts for the return of the Lord. We're told to not grumble. And everything we've just said about patience could be said again uh, with respect to grumbling. But I want you to notice this. The instruction is not uh, simply to avoid grumbling in general. Okay. Rather, it is uh, an instruction to not grumble against your fellow believers. Now that's interesting, isn't it? He's not even saying don't grumble about your oppressors. He's saying don't grumble among yourselves with your fellow believers. So verse 9, do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not uh, be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. And what we are reminded of in that passage here, in that verse, is that there is this bizarre fact of life, which I'm sure you've noticed, which is when we are mistreated by those who are not able, those those who we are not able to punish directly, we take it out on those we can punish. You think about how many marriages are broken up because of external pressures. Two people that really liked each other quite a bit. Wanting nothing to do with each other anymore. Not because of anything that the other person had done. But simply because of pressure coming in from the outside. It is a strange fact of the sinful heart. That when we cannot execute justice against those who have wronged us. We vent against those who love us. And it is a tremendous sin and a tremendous pain. Hardship that should drive couples together sometimes drives couples apart. And if this is you, then you need to hear what James is saying here. He's saying that the judge is at the door. He is not coming to judge those who oppress you. He is coming to judge you. That's what it is saying. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at your door. So, we've talked about patience. We need to be patient. We need to be patient with one another. We need to not grumble amongst ourselves as we wait for the coming of the Lord. Thirdly, we need to be careful to always guard and revere The name of the Lord let me read the verse that I'm drawing this from and uh, I'll show you how I get there so verse 12 it says this but above all my brothers do not swear neither by heaven nor by earth nor by any other oath but let your yes be yes and your no be no so that you may not fall under condemnation now you might ask well What does that have to do with revering the name of God? Well, let me tell you. What this verse is condemning is not so much the swearing of oaths. Rather, it is condemning the swearing by holy objects or holy places as a way of making your oath seem more forceful. So it is uh, the same that is going on in uh, Matthew 5 and verse 35, where uh, Jesus tells them not to swear by Jerusalem or by any other place, uh, but rather to let the yes be yes and no be no. Uh, The idea is not that oaths are bad always. After all, there are many oaths sworn in the Bible by many people. Uh, Paul swears an oath in Acts 18, we talked about that. An angel swears an oath in Revelation 20. Uh, In fact, Deuteronomy 23 gives instructions on how to swear oaths, right? It's a, a regulated practice through the Old Testament. So the issue is not so much swearing oaths per se, but it is swearing for the sake of gaining credibility, of gaining authority in what you say. And in that case, you are to rather let your yes be yes and your no be no. And you can imagine how this might apply in the context of James. See, when people are acting fraudulently uh, and stealing one another's money, uh, it, is, it would be very uh, tempting for those who have been defrauded to show up in court and swear black and blue that their side of the story was true. I swear by heaven and earth and I swear by this and this and this and all these things and for all of this reason you should believe my testimony that I've been defrauded. It would be a very tempting thing to do. And in the Jewish mindset, and it, it should also be our mindset, to do so is actually to take the Lord's name in vain to swear by things that are associated with God, to swear by all of these things, is to take the Lord's name in vain. It is to use His name in a way that is not holy and reverential and pure and wonderful. And that is what uh, James is condemning here, which is why he says, Above all, in all of these things, as you avoid grumbling, as you uh, avoid impatience, above all of these things, brothers, I want you to hold this... In mind, do not trivialize the name of God by swearing upon holy objects and so on. Rather, just let your yes be yes and your no be no. That's what he's saying. That's the point. And from here, he launches to a wonderful example of one man who never trivialized the name of God, no matter how much he suffered. The great example of steadfast suffering in the person of Job. Now, Job was not perfect. We know that. Job had his issues, but one thing that he never did is dishonor the name of the Lord. Remember the end of uh, chapter one of James. Uh, sorry, of uh, Job. Messengers come and tell him of all the tragedies that have befallen him. In fact, you remember there are four messengers that come. One comes to him and says, all of your servants have been killed. Another one comes immediately after that person's given his message and says uh, that a fire has consumed your sheep. And as that person is still speaking, somebody else arrives and says uh, that bandits have come and driven off the rest of your livestock. And as that person is still speaking, a fourth messenger comes and says... All of your children were celebrating in a house and a strong wind blew and it fell on them and killed them. It's a bad day. And how does Job respond to this news? He tears his clothes. He shaves his head. He falls on the ground and he worships God. Naked I came from my mother's womb, he says. Naked I shall return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He blesses the name of the Lord. He guards the name of the Lord in his time of trial, and his time of suffering. And notice the great sin that his wife commits is the exact opposite of that. So the wife who sees her husband, whom I'm sure she loves, uh, suffering, says, uh, gives him this advice. Curse God and die. Now I've often wondered why she said that. Um, that seems uh, a very odd piece of advice. But I wonder actually if her heart was in the right place. Here's what I mean. She saw the great suffering and pain of her husband. She figured probably the quickest way to be released from this pain was if he died. It would be better for him to just die than continue to suffer as he is. And probably the quickest way to bring about his death would be to do what? To curse God. So there is a strange logic to her thinking, but it is, of course, a foolish piece of advice, as Job uh, famously points out to her. And says rather, shall we receive good from the Lord, from God, from God? Uh, And not receive evil. And in all these things he did not sin with his lips. Now I wonder if that could be said about you when you're suffering. In all of the things you say at times of suffering. Could it be said that in all these things they did not sin with their lips. Or charge God with wrong. I'm wondering if in all of our suffering and all of our difficulty we can do what James tells us to do above all, which is to revere and protect the holy name of the Lord. That that matters more than your bank account, that that matters more than your health, that that matters more than anything else in your life, revering the name of the Lord. This is what we are taught to do. This is the great example of Job to us. But I want to finish by just considering this question. How is it that Job had the motivation to endure the suffering and not curse the name of the Lord? How is it that he was able to endure it? He didn't like it. How was he able to endure it and stay uh, of a mindset that kept him from cursing God, but rather he revered God and worshiped God? I want to suggest to you that it is by knowing something about the second coming of Jesus Christ, which is why Job was able to patiently endure his suffering. He wouldn't have known anywhere near as much as you know, but he knew something. About the second coming of Christ, which I think was his motivating uh, knowledge. Let me read a passage to you in closing from Job 19. Job 19, and I'm going to read from verse 23. Oh, that my words were written, oh, that they were inscribed in a book, oh, that with an iron pen. And lead, they were engraved in a rock forever. In other words, what I'm saying is really important. And then he says this. For I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, He will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold Him and not another. What is Job's hope? Job's hope is in his Redeemer who lives. It might be be too much to say Job has in mind the second coming of Jesus Christ. It might be too much to go all the way there and say, oh, here he's talking about the second coming of Jesus Christ. But here's what we know he is talking about. He knows his Redeemer lives. That's what he's saying he knows his redeemer lives and in the last will stand upon the earth he knows that even though he might die yet in his flesh he shall see god he knows that he will be saved from all of the suffering from all of this difficulty from all of the trial even if his own body should give up and he should be killed he will be redeemed he could patiently endure Because he knew the end of the story. So here we come back to where we started. When you know the end of the story. When you know that you will win. When you know that your flesh will win. When you know that you will one day stand before God. Redeemed without the cancer. Without the depression. Without the injustice. Without the persecution. And all these things will be made right. Then you can... Endure these things patiently. And that is what James is telling us to do. To establish your heart for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Be patient for the coming of the Lord is at hand. That is what James is telling us to do. And that is the practical impact that the second coming of Jesus Christ should have on your life. Do you think he's coming? Do you think he's coming today? I know a preacher who used to say, every time he'd speak about the second coming, he would say, "Uh, do you believe that the Lord is coming today? Do you think he'll be here today? And people would search their minds and they'd realise, no, I don't really expect him to come today. I know he'll come, but probably not today. And then he would immediately quote for them Matthew 24, 44. At an hour that they do not expect, the Son of Man will come. Today is the hour you do not expect him to come, is it not? At an hour you do not expect, the Son of Man is coming. And because you know he is coming, and it is as sure as sure can be, we can patiently endure all things. We can patiently endure all wrongs done to us. We can patiently endure all suffering and difficulty that this world has to offer. Because our Redeemer lives and will one day stand upon the earth. And even though our skin may be destroyed, yet in our flesh we shall see God, whom we shall see for ourselves, and our eyes shall behold him and not another. Amen? Let's pray together. Almighty God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for the peace that can be ours, because we know that our Redeemer lives. Father, may we be a people that, plow, that, that digs deep into this gold mine of the second coming of Christ Jesus, and that is remind, that we remind ourselves, and I remind it every day, every difficulty we have, every injustice we face, when someone cuts us off in traffic, when someone defrauds us, when someone steals from us, or criticizes us, or even when our bodies begin to fall apart, Lord, may we sit patiently and endure with joy in our hearts, knowing that we have actually won, and that all of these setbacks are meaningless, (laughs) relatively speaking, because all things will be granted to us at the coming of Jesus Christ. We thank you for him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.